This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Tonight, Vivian is reporting from the Sustainable Living Festival, which uh, you may be aware was held recently here in Melbourne. She met Dean Belfield from the Australian Regenerative Farmers Association. They talked about the build-up of carbon in the soil and the drawdown of that very carbon with biochar. After that, she spoke to Shu Xuen from Penang, Malaysia. It's food heaven there, but the Green Council is getting citizens to stop wasting water and food. Plus, they are resisting moves towards nuclear power. But first, let's hear from Simon Sheik. Simon tried to get Viv to join up with the future super and guaranteed her super will never be recklessly invested in fossil fuel projects. I'm at the Sustainable Living Festival and I've met Simon Shake here. He's the founder of Future Super, which I thought might dive. It was a new superannuation company and I thought that must be pretty hard to set up. But 18 months on, they're still surviving and apparently they're doing well. Good morning, Simon. Tell us about it. Well, great to be with you. And uh, and, it, and you're right, it has been a fantastic journey for Future Super. Uh, Future Super is Australia's first fossil fuel-free superannuation fund. And 18 months in, we've already shifted over $130 million away from funds invested in the fossil fuel industry and we've had a great story to tell. Our performance in 2015 has been great. We outperformed most of the of the comparable market uh, and the reason why we launched Future Super in the first place is also proving itself. The reason we launched it is really as to be the first domino in the domino effect. We want other funds to copy our investment strategy because we believe in the beauty and the power of shifting money away from the fossil fuel industry. We've got to hit them where it hurts, and that's what Future Super is all about. Well, I approached my super company, and they were—they thought I was some real radical, and I thought, well, look, I do a radio program about climate change. Oh, that explains it then. You're a daffy duck who's got these sort of weird interests. But now my super fund has done very well with me not having any investment in fossil fuel that they arranged for me. So tell me how the average person, if they put their super in your fund now compared to one of the mainstream ones, the other ones, what, um, what would be the difference? The difference between us and many other funds is that we're the only one not to invest in fossil fuels uh, that's available to the retail lawyers. That means that we don't invest in coal, coal seam, gas, uh, any other forms of gas or oil, but we also screen out the banks that finance these industries and those companies that provide major services to those industries. It's very hard to build your own fund, but of course it can be done through the self-managed super fund system. You can build your own fund that has that similar strategy. But for those people who want uh, a simple option that they can join online in just a few 
few minutes and know they're doing the right thing with their super. That's what Future Super's for. Michael told me about a, a report from Market Forces called Burned. Will you tell me about it? <laughs> well, the great uh, information that's coming out uh, in recent weeks and months is just how the performance objectives are being met by super funds who aren't investing in fossil fuels and the impact on those who are. As we all know, we hear it in the news every day, uh, the mining sector, the commodities industry, uh, very volatile and haven't had a very good time of late. Part of that is because there's an increasing realisation among sophisticated investors who, uh, who, if you like, play the stock market, that stranded asset risk is becoming real. Uh, that as the world moves to two degrees, as the renewable energy industry gets more and more cost-effective, the relative value of companies who own coal uh, deposits, for example, is declining. And that creates an opportunity for super funds to do the right thing. But those who have it, market forces research has shown, have felt the impact. Over $5 billion lost by the top 15 funds in the last two years alone because of their investments in fossil fuels. This is a substantive issue for the retirement savings of everyday Australians. Indeed, the UN climate chief has come out publicly and asked superannuation and pension funds around the world to divest from fossil fuels, not for the environment, to, but to protect their members' savings. Well, I think, in general, people in the retirement age group and younger too, are very nervous about changing super funds. It just seems like money matters. You have to be very prudent about them. But what's the, what are the steps involved in getting involved in changing over to a new super fund? Well, at Future Super, we believe the long-term risks of the fossil fuel industry outweigh any short-term rewards that one can earn by playing the market, if you like. Although, as we've seen of late, there haven't even been those short-term rewards. The process of changing is actually fairly simple, and that's because we've made it really straightforward. The government changed the laws a few years ago uh, in such a way that all super funds now have to talk to each other. So by going on the Future Super website, myfuturesuper.com.au, uh, everyday Australians can throw in their tax file number, uh, read the product disclosure statement and switch on the spot. It only takes a few minutes, but the real game changer is that we find your other funds for you. Not just your lost super, many other funds have been doing that for years. We're one of the first funds to make it very easy to consolidate all of your other super accounts without having to know the member numbers of all of them or the details of all of them. And that's because we're integrated with the Australian Tax Office database that makes this really easy. We constantly get emails and phone calls from people who are joining saying, I can't believe it was so easy. The intention to action gap in supervaluation is really large because we all think it's complex. But yes. once you do it and it takes three minutes, people can't believe it. Okay. I'm speaking to Simon Shake and I'm getting the Simon Shake magic, the very fast talking. And I'd just like to know, Simon, how have you been going since Get Up? You were very motivated by climate change. Now you've become very specific now about divestment. In the world view, what, what are your feelings now about climate action? Well, my journey has been fundamentally about wanting to see the climate crisis tackled. And for me, that's always been about saying that we've got to get to the point where renewable energy is cheaper than dirty energy. Uh, so that's why, having left Get Up, I ran for Parliament, because I could see uh, that uh, in the ACT where I ran for a Senate seat, it was a very strategic moment in time where, had I won, we could have saved Australia's clean energy laws. Having just lost that race, it was very clear to me that we couldn't give up the fight. And so it became obvious to me, and, and I guess to many other Australians who are participating in this movement, over 4,500 people having joined Future Super already, that the fundamental thing we had to do was get out of politics and into capital markets. With Tony Abbott as Prime Minister, and frankly, even with Malcolm Turnbull, who's really not much better on climate change, at least in his actual uh, deeds rather than his words, the proof here is that we need to shift capital markets and hit them where it hurts. 
taking money out of the fossil fuel industry makes it harder for them to invest in their future and therefore in relative terms makes it easier for the renewable energy industry and investing in the renewable energy industry gives them the capital they need to reduce the marginal cost of abatement. The marginal cost of abatement is the core concept here. That's the one that says for every extra unit of pollution that we're taking out, it gets cheaper and cheaper. Why? Because as we scale industries, we learn more about how to operationalise the R&D that's already happened. That's how we reduce the costs of these big scaled projects that are going to slash Australia's emissions and indeed the world's emissions. Okay, well, thank you very much. That's, we've been listening to Simon Sheik. He's the uh, founder and manager of the Future Super Superannuation Fund, and they're based in Canberra. What's the telephone number and what's the email that people can contact you through? Well, the easiest way to contact us uh, is uh, on our website, myfuturesuper.com.au, but you can always get in touch, info at myfuturesuper.com.au, and our team are always ready to take people's call on 1300 658 That's 1300 658 We absolutely love talking people you don't have to do it online you can just give us a call and we can do it for you over the phone we love talking to not only our members but also anyone who's interested in divestment fantastic thank you and simon's giving a talk today at the uh, sustainable living festival who are the other people and what will that be about well it's a wonderful conversation that we're having between john hewson from the asset owners disclosure project of course the former opposition leader who's very strong on the issue of capital markets and shifting supervaluation we've also got charlie wood from 350.org who of course are, uh, an amazing organization that really kicked off divestment campaigning globally uh, we've got the australian youth climate coalition being represented as well with their campaigns against the banks um, and a range of other people as well, all being emceed by the wonderful Rachel Allen Buckus from the Sustainability Report. And if you're not on the Sustainability Report, I recommend you get on that because they do a fantastic job there at telling these stories, in addition, of course, to this wonderful radio program. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world... They're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories, from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided... The nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is ours. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Um, I'm at the Sustainable Living Festival down by the Yarra and I found a person here called Dean Belfield. He's from the Regenerative Australian Farmers Group and he told us that he's an engineer but comes from a farming background. Now he's started farming again at a time when climate change is a big threat to farmers. Um, Dean, what are you trying to achieve? Um, With the Regenerative Australian Farmers, or RAF as it's known, what we're trying to do is affect transformation right across Australia and, and play a part at a global level to show that by drawing down carbon into the soil through the natural photosynthetic pump, which nature does for us, we can, um, <clears throat> we can not only um, draw down carbon at scale across the planet in a way that's even unimaginable and perhaps return it back to its 
the former levels of carbon that used to exist in the soils. Um, and that can do several things. One, it can um, play a significant role in mitigating the emission rises. In fact, we can draw those emissions back um, to safe levels. At the same time, um, we can we cool the planet. And let me just explain that briefly. Is it by putting carbon back into the soils? Um, we also rehydrate the soils and through that we actually cool the planet and we cool the soils. So the more the more water that's drawn into the soil through photosynthesis and as we all know when we sit under a hot on a hot day under a tree there's a cooling effect through transpiration. That is the secret to cooling the planet and avoiding catastrophic climate change. At the same time by having healthy soils we produce healthy chemical free food which then goes to, provides healthy people. So we close the loop at all levels and people are more productive and we create jobs. Well, you provided us with a lot of information, but one thing that stuck out for me, that you said um, virgin soils when white settlers came here contained a lot more carbon than they do now, and the average Australian farm doesn't contain much carbon and it doesn't contain much water. What are the management practices that you advise to reverse that trend? That's a great question. (laughs) Um, Firstly, we have to understand. That's the first step. Actually understand the consequences of our current actions and often it's the unintended um, or the unconscious unexamined assumptions that underpin um, our actions that lead to unintended consequences and that's exactly what's happening in this space. So the types of actions and there are many but one good example which is one that we're keen on supporting is um, using biological farming practices such as planned grazing or holistic grazing which work the animals together with the pastures because they're symbiotic, they've evolved together over history. Uh, the ruminants of cattle, for example, um, is very rich in bacteria, which is what the soil thrives on. So you get this um, co-relationship building. It's a positive feedback loop, and that has the potential to change so much. So that's a classic um, example of practices that we can adopt in a way that's actually cheaper per hectare to do that, and that's what we're doing on our farm. Um, and even more attractively, it's more profitable and it's more rewarding. So it's just—it's instead of fighting nature or be, remaining disconnected to nature or remaining oblivious of what natural systems are doing, we actually need to understand those, embrace those completely and go with the flow of what nature's telling us and harness that together with our wisdom and our technology to get terrific outcomes. We had another speaker on that panel who spoke about biochar and feeding the biochar to the cows and the sheep, you know, feeding it to them and then they excrete it as in a managed grazing way, in, you know, keep moving them on and moving them on and that excrement contains the biochar. Feed the biochar to cows, the cows poop it out. The best way to condition biochar is to put it through an animal. 90% of biochar in Europe is fed by animals or used in animal bedding. Then let the dung beetles roll it up and take it down into the soil profile. They take it 40 centimetres down. Uh, they do all the work of conditioning and taking it down, and it's profitable for the farmer. So that's a way of getting into our pasture lands. So biochar is just one arrow in a quiver of things that we can do, and we have to do them all, and we have to concentrate on that to sequester carbon at the same time as we take our emissions down to zero. Is that something that you thought of to enrich the soil? Yes, we have been aware of that, absolutely. Um, and it'll also have another impact of... Because um, the same thing applies to humans. When we have charcoal tablets that for some people who might um, suffer from flatulence, that's uh, one of the, the 
the prescriptions, if you like. And so what that does with cattle is it will actually reduce the amount of methane, both ends of the cow, um, as well as um, inherently putting the biochar um, in with the fertiliser through, the, obviously, the back end of the cow and making that available to the plants and to the bugs and so on. Um, so I think it's a terrific idea, makes a lot of sense if you can only get that biochar to the animals. Okay, the other thing is, you said farmers are going to ask the question how to monetize this, you know, how am, I, how am I going to make a buck out of this or isn't this going to just drain my already depleted reserves? A lot of people are leaving farming because it's, you know, there's drought and conditions that are just forcing them off the farm. So you've just started recently in farming. Tell us about your place. How, how do, do you hope to make money out of it? Do you hope to get carbon credits? out of it how you how you go to monetize what you're doing uh that's a good question too because we that's certainly our plan and just a one minor point of correction there i've been involved in farming for my whole life i grew up on a farm but just we bought our own farm um just recently so whilst having grown up with an understanding of the need to farm organically and um you know minimum chemicals and work with natural systems we have the chance right now and that's why we're doing it to put all this into practice um i've been wanting to do biodynamics for 30 years and i actually also studied masters of environmental science where i first met the biodynamic people um so in the first step for us is in terms of monetizing it is we know and there's not a shred of doubt in my mind that if we follow these types of regenerative farming practices we can at least double our productivity firstly um, but that's not everything because when in the balance sheet it's also the net profit has to factor in the costs and by farming in this particular way you can reduce um, the input cost to um, at least to one eighth and I can point to many examples of where that is happening so if you say I'll double my productivity reduce my input costs or expenses to one eighth uh, that's a fairly attractive outcome that's the first step so from a productivity point of view um, it's a big win secondly so just explain you're enriching the soil you're not using so much fertilizer and pesticide as other people no, what, what are you growing also first of all using no pesticides right. no chemicals at all and the only the fertilizer is what comes through the cow and letting nature regenerate itself through the biological activity the fungi activity yeah we're sitting in a very distracting place, listeners. There's all people strolling past along the Yarra, people rowing past and people cycling past. It's very distracting. We're talking to Dean Belfield, who's very interested in soil carbon, returning carbon to the soil from regenerative Australian farmers. What are you actually growing? So we're growing cattle in the first instance by choice. Um, we could put sheep there as well, but I think cattle is the best way to, to <coughs> kick-start this process. Um, we've done a soil test already, so we know what the baseline is, and we're working from there. <clears throat> and so we are, we're, we're growing cattle, but we're doing it in this planned or holistic grazing model where we densely um, group the cattle, use electric fences, and we, they get onto new pasture every couple of days, and therefore they break the parasitic cycle so we don't need to drench them anymore. Um, that's the first thing. In terms of over time what we'll also intend to do is to look at growing some some crops um, one particular one we're very interested in is growing hemp industrial hemp because that grows very quickly it needs a bit of water um, it actually conditions the soil beautifully and it's quite a profitable product it's an amazing product <coughs> thirdly we, we'll also look at other um, uh, cropping opportunities at a small scale such as um, maybe spelt wheat or quinoa so that's our plan, and we'll also introduce some uh, sustainable community agriculture 
down on the sort of uh, creek flats area. Well, thank you. We're nearly at the end here, but you mentioned you, you're familiar with the Beyond Zero Emissions land plan, and we're thinking of taking these things to scale. So what you learn on your farm now, what are the, some of the practices that you think are most important, not just for Australian farmers, but for farmers worldwide to draw down carbon to enrich the soil? What, what's the most important message when you're thinking at the big scale? Uh, well, I th- think what we've got to do is come back to my point earlier, and that is um, help people actually understand what's going on beneath their feet in the soil, not just what happens above it, because that's the key to it all. That's the black box. That's the magic. And if we get that right and develop a, a much closer, if you like, personal relationship with that so that when we put a fork into the soil and unearth it, we see the, mo- we see the worms straight away. We see the colour of the soil. We feel the moisture. We can smell it and the texture. And so... It, it actually smells healthy. It doesn't smell like dead or semi-decaying soil. You almost want to eat it. It's, it's so n- nourishing and rich. <clears throat> so so that's, um, that's critical in terms of having that understanding. And then what you need to do, or what we're doing, is developing a, a management plan that's appropriate to both the farmer's capacity to, and desires for that land and also what their longer-term plans are. So you're not trying to fight with anything. You're actually just working with the flow there. <clears throat> Um, how you then scale this up, uh, which is a critical question, is firstly we have to demonstrate it, and, and, and it's not as though this hasn't been done because what we what we need to do much better is capture the case studies and get the data behind that, which is available. But it's a lot of people who are doing this, they you know they don't necessarily they're not motivated by having to share it with the world because they know it works. So perhaps beyond zero emissions can play a role in capturing those case studies. Uh, moving from the theoretical um, papers written by academics into ground-based research that's verifiable on the farm. Um, So the empirical data is there and and get a trend line through that, linking that back to productivity once and and obviously, um, you know, all-round gain on the land and at the local community level because it can be a tremendous boost for local economic growth, um, people's interest in cleaner, healthier, better foods um, at a localised level. And then once people see that these opportunities are there, it could take off like a steam train. And although from a climate change point of view, that analogy wasn't so great. An electric vehicle. (laughs) It's sort of like a Tesla. Um, um, So, and we're actually working on trying to achieve this at scale right across Australia at the moment. So we're talking about... Um, with some of the politicians about well, and, and other business leaders about what would it take to sequester, just initially, across 100 farms, um, 10 million tonnes of carbon, or CO2, per year, ongoingly. And then we want to scale up to 1,000 farms, um, and then we scale it up to 10,000 farms. So there's over a period of time there is a, feel like a defined plan there, and... When I say we, it's it's a collaborative effort. It can only work that way, so it, we have to engage the farmers who have to become part of us, <clears throat> and they have to see that this not only is it exciting for them, because most farmers are actually very keen to support their land and the biology and so on. They're very close to that. Um, but once, a bit like a wildfire, we want to ignite that potential um, and then we can we seriously can transform it because we have so many wonderful examples of farms that are doing that by themselves. We just have to start joining them up around the country. And the quickest way to do that is show them how they can make more money from it, to be honest. Okay. And, the, and the other great hope is linking back into the 4-1000th declaration that came out of Paris, which is to lift the average amount of um, carbon in soils by 0.4% per hectare per annum globally, which we can do 
we can do up to 30 um, tonnes of CO2 per hectare per annum. So 0.4% is very little, but we can do it. So Australia could balance out its own emissions by drawing down this carbon? Oh, we, absolutely. We could, we could not only do it, we could far exceed that. And the other point that wasn't raised, two points that weren't raised in the talk, was one is about the potential for cooling the planet, because if we switched off all fossil fuel emissions tomorrow, the, the um, legacy carbon that's in the oceans will be released, and we're still on track for you know, in excess of four degrees, some people say up to six degrees, um, which won't sustain human life for very long. <clears throat> so we have to cool the planet at the same time. And the, the only way that we know... Um, it's not through geoengineering, it's through biological processes, it's through photosynthesis and transpiration. So that's the most important opportunity of, um, that exists for everybody and it's the most exciting opportunity at this point in time. Thank you very much. That really was exciting. Thank you. That was uh, Dean from the... Oh, now, what's the name? Regenerative Australian Farmers. Thank you. My papers are blowing in the state of Penang, they have the Green Council, which I think is a very interesting initiative for education. Welcome to the Beyond Zero show. Hello, everyone. I'm Sushen from Penang, Malaysia. The state government uh, established the Penang Green Council to mobilise more stakeholders, more people to come up with green ideas, green initiative. Uh, because we realise that um, environment is not just a job for the government. It needs, it needs to be... It is the responsibility of all citizens okay. in Penang. Well, that interested me because it sounds like you created a bit of a green army there with yes. uh, house-to-house education yes. campaigns, children, women especially, and you went even out to the villages and yes. got people involved in what sort of things. Was, oh, it looks like water, water conservation um, and waste disposal, all sorts of things that are important for climate change that we don't waste materials that we've got yeah. so what was the um house to house education campaign what did you do there okay uh basically we focus on three issues uh, waste reduction water conservation and also energy conservation because Penang is a 70 percent urbanized state in malaysia so uh we we hope to reach out more population to to conserve resources so our focus is always on resource efficiency. In terms of house-to-house, um, we are talking about um, waste segregation because this is something that everyone can do, starting from their surrounding areas, starting at home, in the school, in the office. So in terms of uh, when we are doing house-to-house, we, we we are focusing on the urban area, no, so, sorry, not urban areas, rural yeah. areas, yes. rural and suburb areas, and uh, because um, our resources tend to be allocated to all those um, disadvantaged groups. Mm. So uh, all these people, they are very busy with uh, their, with meeting their livings every day. Yes. So they might not be able to receive some of the um, information from the government um, from time to time. So we have to knock their door and talk to them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, but this yeah. thing about energy conservation, uh, yeah. how does that work? What do you talk to them about? Okay, in terms of energy conservation, uh, why is it uh, um, in our top agenda? Because uh, federal government, the federal government is going to build two nuclear power plants in Malaysia, but the Penang State Government is against their planning. So we are against the nuclear power plant, and and we must come up with some alternatives. So we we always uh, advocate that we, uh, you must people must start from energy saving. Yes. So um, it is about energy efficiency. Then after that, if you can afford to do more, you can go into renewable energy. Oh. 
So is that happening in Malaysia? Are there renewable energy wind farms or solar plants? Um, the government has a planning for solar PV and it's still developing and then yes. uh, people who who engage with solar com- uh, company are increasing but uh, we still meet, need more incentive yes. uh, to encourage people to do the things. Okay, so house-to-house education is one thing. What about the youth camps? It sounds like you do a lot with children bringing up the next generation. What 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 is the emphasis there? Um, in the youth camp, we are focusing on the future leaders. We are showing them some of the hot issues currently currently, and then we, we, all this youth uh, will be the future of the country or of the state. We hope that after they, they finish their studies in the secondary school, um, when they are choosing the, the courses in the university, they can go into environment so that um, we can have more people to work for the, for the environment in future. Okay. Yeah, we, we, we need more passionate people to work for the environment yes. people, because people who work for the environment must be passionate enough to, to keep things going yes. to make things happen yes. yeah it's not just a job yes, no. No, it's a, I was impressed in your materials about food which we have a big problem in Australia of wasting food uh-huh. you know it's wasted at the supermarket and it's wasted in the home where people just push it to the back of the refrigerator then it goes off but your brochure here says buy it with thought cook it with care serve just enough save what we'll keep eat what would spoil and homegrown is best now that that is quite progressive that's very um, good not to waste do people like this message no <laughs> <laughs> they don't <laughs> why not because um i think changes takes time <laughs> we cannot change any society overnight <laughs> um um when we talk about food uh, now the first step is about food waste we have to reduce food waste and then when it comes to the thinking about how to reduce food waste um, apart from the from dealing with the waste that have been cooked we have to reduce the generation of the of the food of the yeah. example uh, especially Penang is a food heaven <laughs> <laughs> yes I've heard Penang tourists go there for the beautiful food yeah and then people just want to eat and then sometimes <laughs> they order a lot and then they can't finish it they just leave it on the table so, uh. so um, we are also working with um, with the schools and some restaurant hotels and hopefully they can come out with um, some dishes which um, which can reduce the Food waste. Just to finish, what's your personal view about the climate future? Personally, I feel quite pessimistic. Yeah. Yeah, and then every time if I think of the future of the earth or the planets, I feel like I want to cry. But um, since I already started uh, um, working for the environment and engaging people, and then I must, I have to be positive yes. <laughs> about the changes. Yes. Yeah, and then we. We have to, I think we, now the governments all over the world are looking into the adaptation and also mitigation. Yes. There's nowhere for us, I mean, nowhere for us to stop uh, all the changes uh, no. caused by climate change already. No. No. So, um, Is it impacting on Malaysia very much? Are you feeling uh, the, yes, the we weight of climate change? Extreme weather in Penang. We have to worry about the water supply. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So it affected everyone actually, but um, climate change is still not a popular, not a popular issue yet. No. But we are there are a lot of organisations are campaigning, um, are focusing on certain issues which are related to climate change. Okay.
Yeah. Well, thank you very much for sharing sharing your thoughts about it. I think we all want to cry about it, but doing something about it lifts you up a little bit, and more of us the better. So thank you very much. So this was um, a young lady I've met from the Penang uh, Green Council talking about the project they're doing there. Indeed, and that young lady was Miss Xu Xiang from Penang. Lastly tonight, we've got an interview courtesy of Radio EcoShock, and thanks to Alex Smith in Vancouver for giving us permission to play this. This interview is with Jeremy Leggett, the author of The Winning of the Carbon War. And Mr. Leggett says, now is the time when the, t- now is the, time when the tide is changing in a positive direction, leaving you on an uplifting note today. He's been involved in the climate battle for decades. Jeremy Leggett founded the business Solar Century and the charity Solar Aid. He's chair of Carbon Tracker and author of many books on climate, energy, and society. Until recently, Leggett felt what we all feel, that the fight to decarbonize, to save the planet from terrible climate change, is being lost. Now his website bears the banner, The Winning of the Carbon War. Dr. Jeremy Leggett, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. Well, at one time, way back when, as an earth scientist, you did research for big oil companies. Is that right? That's correct. I spent more than a decade on the faculty at um, the Imperial College of Science and Technology, the Royal School of Mines, um, and I did quite a bit of research for oil companies, including BP and Shell funded um, my work on what were then called source rocks, black shales. Now, of course, with uh, shale gas and shale oil there, they're actually reservoir rocks. Right. They're worth trillions now, so we're told. And then you switched over and wrote some reports for Greenpeace. That is a big change. What drove you to the other side? It, well, my research was on the geological history of the oceans, and I got more and more worried through the 1980s about what the atmospheric uh, scientists were finding about the heat-trapping ability of the greenhouse gases. So that worry never went away. It's just got worse, really, over the years. And ultimately, I quit. I, I left that world, essentially the world of oil and gas, to campaign on climate change, which is what... I see myself as having done ever since, really. And coming towards the present, tell us about the triple threat blog that you've kept for years. Yeah, so this is, you know, the uh, the threat of climate change from the burning of fossil fuels. It's uh, about all that and, and the, the events relative to it. It's about energy resources and how... You know, we hear this narrative that there's, that there's plentiful energy, but actually I'm in that camp, has to be admitted a minority camp, that think that there may be an awful lot of oil and gas down there under the ground, but how much of it can we actually bring up economically and burn? And we, we don't think that that is anything like as much as the industry is telling folk. And the third threat, of course, is the ever-present Skeptor of of a financial crisis because of the foibles of the capital markets. And when did you come to feel humanity was losing the battle to prevent very dangerous climate change? Well, I started out optimistic. I got to the Rio Earth Summit in 1992, and I was cautiously optimistic after that. But then, you know, as the drama unfolded through the 1990s, and the first decade of this century, 
I, uh, I began to take a pretty bleak view simply because of the enormous persistence of the incumbency pushback against what I thought were very compelling arguments for big change in society and change that, you know, it was totally within our compass to bring about if we could just summon the collective will. And so I was gloomy until, you know, around May, around the middle of 2013. And then it seemed to me at the time that the tide might be changing and now, of course, we're living in a time where there are daily developments that I think demonstrate very clearly that the tide is is changing. It's changing in a positive direction. There are mega trends emerging. There are remarkable things happening on an almost daily basis now. And that's why I call my book The Winning of the Carbon War, because I think we have begun to win. Now, that's not the same as saying we have won. The book's not called how the carbon war was won, <laughs> and there's still drama to be lived through on, on that front. But I, I think, you know, the, the tide of, of war, if you like to use that analogy, has turned. Do you feel we are at a pivotal moment in the history of this civilization? I do. And, uh, you know, it, I don't know that you can call it a moment. It's a time. It's a period of a few years. And I think if we just take the events of the last few days to make my point, the G7 leaders, the industrialized nations, a couple of days ago in Germany, agreed for the first time that their targets were going to be to get rid of fossil fuels, decarbonization 100% by the end of this century. So that's 85 years maximum. And crucially, en route to that, they agreed that set the target should be 70%. Now, that's 35 years from now in 2050. So this is going to send a huge signal into the market. So basically saying to the um, energy incumbency, your days are numbered. And okay, that may seem like a long time, but actually, you know what? 35 years isn't a very long time. In parallel to that, of course, we've got all these remarkable developments in clean energy. So then the, the next thing, I'd um, the next day, I woke up and read in the newspapers that there's a poll now that shows that 80% of 18 to 34-year-olds think that investing in fossil fuels is a risky thing to do. Can you imagine? I mean, what what... What future does an industry have when you have that higher percentage of young people saying, hmm, I don't want my pension to go into any of that stuff? And it's clear what the corollary is. You know, it's um, all the exciting stuff that's coming out of Silicon Valley um, and China these days. So I do think we're living in turnaround times. But, you know, uh, it's still ours to mess up. We're, you know, quite capable of doing that, we human beings, are we not? We are, we are. Tell us what's going on, Jeremy, with the climate and the Vatican and whether that matters. Yes, I think that's another dimension, you know, because so much of the debate is waged in terms of pure economics, as currently defined, as though putting heat trapping into the gases into the atmosphere has no cost at all. It's not accounted on the books. And, you know, that, that, see, that passes the rational debate. So we're constantly hearing, you know, what's the cost of 
gas burning versus the cost of solar energy and all the rest of it. Uh, and the good news there, of course, is that solar energy is is plunging in cost, and most of the um, incumbency fuels are soaring in cost. That's cost, not price. That's a very important distinction, of course. And and yet now the, the Vatican and, and other faith groups are taking a really strong interest in all this because it's about, you know, the fate of creation after all. And um, it looks as though the Pope, when his encyclical, you know, his message to all the world's Catholics comes out, it's going to be really strong. I mean, the Vatican's already been making very strong noises about threats to creation and the implications for people's souls if they willfully continue with this kind of destructive behavior. So <laughs> I think that, that adds a whole new dimension to the drama. I think there ought to be an ethical side to all this. It's, it, if everything is just about the bottom line, you know, what the economics are, however defined at the end of the day, it's a pretty sorry state of affairs. Yes, well, certainly there are people who are outside our economic system, as we understand it. We have Bangladeshis on low-lying plains that uh, are contributing nothing, practically, to the carbon problem, and they're going to lose their homes. And then we have all the species, Jeremy, that are absolutely innocent, that are going to be wiped out or made extinct by climate change. That's right. And uh, their existence and right to existence, what's the price put on that? Well, you know, usually precisely nothing. So it kind of adds to the point about about the ethical situation. So to be honest, though, Jeremy, I have very low expectations for any concrete action coming out of the Paris Climate Talks next December. But what do you think? I I think they're going to make progress. I I mean, I don't think they're going to solve the problem with a uh, treaty that they all sign and wave around. It's much bigger than that. This is a, this is a long game, right? Uh, let, let's say uh, that the objective is to decarbonize sometime this century, as close as we can to 2050, uh, the other side of it. And uh, that, the scientists tell us, would give us a good chance of staying below, you know, this notional danger ceiling of two degrees Celsius. I do think that Paris can come up with a suite of agreements that keeps us on course for that. All right. So that would be a positive outcome. It would be the right direction of travel. Whereas Copenhagen, the previous major climate summit, was a catastrophe. I mean, it, you know, sent, it sent no signal at all. Well, if anything, it sent a signal saying, burn away, people. Uh, you ain't you ain't going to be con- controlled at all. So Copenhagen was a disaster. If we have another one of those, it will be very t- it, it it will be very grim. But I don't think that's what's coming. And I think um, the Americans and the Chinese and their bilateral discussions have created a very positive agenda in the talks. I think there are all sorts of other actors who are getting it about uh, the dilemma that we we face with climate change and acting strongly. I mean, Mrs. Merkel, the German Chancellor, this G7 decision to set as a target uh, the end of fossil fuels before the end of the century, you know, that that was her pushing very hard. She didn't have to, as host, uh, push that through, but she did. She even got the Canadians and the Japanese to sign up to it, and they're real laggards on climate change. Uh, so, you know, there, there's lots of positive indicators going into Paris, and this is all against the backdrop of stuff that's happening 
even if you don't think climate change is a problem, if you think it's all, you know, some conspiracy or whatever crazy theory, you know, some, some people have about the whole thing, then just look at what's happening with the, the contrasting camps. The incumbency costs are going up and up. They're wasting more and more money on frontiers, uh, particularly coal, but also oil and gas, producing diminishing returns on investment. Uh, whereas the clean energy technologies are now, of course, every year the majority of those that, that are deployed in uh, electricity and their costs on the whole are coming down steeply, solar and storage in particular. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest from the UK, solar entrepreneur, activist and climate author, Dr. Jeremy Leggett. Let's talk more about your project to chronicle the carbon war. First of all, what makes it a war? Yeah, I get um, a bit of stick for for that, um, especially from my female friends, and they say, you, you know, heaven's sake, it's not a war. Pe- people aren't being shot. You, you know, you're you had too many toy soldiers when you were a boy, and that's probably true. But you know, it, it feels like a civil war to me. You know, the several reasons for that. First of all, the incumbency lobbyists often talk about war themselves. I mean, this is their language. They tell executives in the coal, oil, and gas companies, you are, to quote one of them recently, in endless war against, you know, insurgents and all the, all the rest of it. They, they use that language. And that's how their cutting-edge action feels to me. It feels like a civil war because, like, civil wars, this is essentially a struggle between two belief systems, end-member belief systems, and as in any civil war, you get people who believe in different belief systems under the same roof. So, you know, within the same government, within the same political party, even conservative parties, you can find people who think global warming is a hideous conspiracy or nothing to worry about. And you can find people who think it's a huge problem uh, and actually want to go the direction of the green industrial revolution. Do you see what I mean? And it's the same within the big energy companies themselves. Many of them I know. I have many friends in these companies. And they tell me that behind closed doors, there are ferocious you know, arguments about uh, about how to face up to the problem and all the rest of it. Maybe not in ExxonMobil, uh, okay, but certainly in some of the other companies. So in a sense, Jeremy Leggett, you're writing a kind of open source book to help us keep track of climate developments. How is it going to work? Well, I'm, I've been publishing it uh, on the first of every month or thereabouts for, uh, let me see, since March, and I'll keep going every month right through to the last scene, which will be the last night of the Paris Climate Summit in December. And so the final chapter will be published or or edition will be published on the 1st of January. And that will then serve as a chronicle for what I hope will be, you know, viewed through the prism of the the rear view mirror, as it were, as the chronicling of the winning of the carbon war. So before we get back to that, I'd like to ask you to put on your hat as a solar entrepreneur in Britain. How is it going? It's going pretty well. We're um, not the most attractive solar market in the world because of basically this this civil war I've talked about. Um, We've we've had endless struggles inside government, um, inside the Conservative Party that controls the government, 
you know, with gas lobbyists on one side who want to put renewables in a box and frack Britain to prosperity with shale gas, none of which, of course, has been produced yet or remotely close to being produced, and others who say, no, this is wrong, we, we should go for Silicon Valley and China, what they're doing, uh, we, we should craft a green industrial revolution. So they've been struggling with each other within the government, and the net effect of that has been a kind of stop-start, you know, okay-ish solar market. It's not as good as the solar market that you have in California or the, the one that the Chinese now have, but, you know, it, it's okay. So Solar Century, the company I founded, operates in Britain, but also Africa and Latin America, and we're a kind of healthy, touchwood, middle-weight company. We're not a rock star like Solar City or Sun Edison, you, you know, to name two American companies. But we're, you know, we're turnover 200 million pounds this year. So, and we're, we're pretty well cashed up and pretty profitable. So, you know, we're, we're a healthy middleweight company. And that to me is a, a successful nonviolent direct action because, you know, that having created something like that, I see that as an intervention in the market and a piece of climate campaigning to show what can be done. My investors hate it when I talk like that, of course, but that's how I see it. <laughs> And briefly, what is Solar Aid? We, Solar Century, set up a charity with 5% of our profits. Um, and Solar Aid is it. It's, it's a solar lighting charity. We sell solar lights in Africa, subsidized. And we've created a retail arm called Sunny Money, which is the number one retailer of solar lighting in the whole of Africa. We've sold 1.7 million solar lights in Africa. And, you know, that's wonderful work because every one of those lights over its lifetime, apart from saving a ton of carbon dioxide, saves the, uh, an African household an average of $70 a year. We know this from, from our follow-up research. There's a lot you can do with that when you're that poor. Sunny money. I love it, and I think that's a real accomplishment. That's great. Now, getting back to this chronicle of a carbon war, as a climate journalist myself, I can't possibly keep up with the major developments that come out every week and scientists tell me the same about new research it's announced so quickly all over the world do you think jeremy we need some kind of central climate information service or do we need more independent voices like yourself what are your thoughts on that well both really i mean you know there's a lot that that can be done with um, government resources and i think to be fair you know some some people are trying very hard there is a real issue of information overload. I myself struggle very badly to keep up. You know, so far I've managed to keep up, but you know, I'm putting in four, five hours a day on top of all the other things I'm doing, just covering everything that's relevant to energy and climate because so much is happening. And that one of the reasons why I'm writing the book is to help people who are really busy, who have, who don't have those hours, you know, to have a, a quick uh, catch-up service that is hopefully a, an enjoyable read as well because I tell it I, I tell it like an epic story, which which of course is what it is. Uh, but you know, most people are not. And I find so many people as I go around my business who just are missing the most basic things that are going on. And it's not surprising. There's no, you can't blame people. Uh, even my own company, they rock up to work at you know eight o'clock in the morning. They've got a computer in their face all day, you know, designing solar farms or whatever it is they do in the company. They're not even reading the newspapers. 
let alone the technical websites and all the rest of it. Well, we've been down so long, more or less at the mercy of powerful fossil fuel corporations and the media and governments that support them. It's hard to imagine winning. Could you tell us what would it look like? What could society look like on the other side in a renewable world? I think that people are going to be amazed at how fast it goes now. That's my honest belief. I don't know how much of this is wishful thinking, but, you know, I think it's going to be so, it's going to be as fast as some of the other real disruptions. Let's take the uh, the internal combustion engine. You know, the famous pictures of Fifth Avenue in 1900, the view down Fifth Avenue is packed with horse-drawn carriages, beautiful horse-drawn carriages. And 13 years later, what do you see in the same view? Not a horse-drawn carriage in sight. They're all horse-less carriages. And I think that's what's coming with solar, with storage, with the use of electricity for transportation. I think it's going to take people's breath away because we're, you know, we're not good collectively at spotting these disruptions in society coming. And this one can be can be a good one because of all the innate characteristics of renewable energy that give you, you know, security, national security, personal security. And that's my belief. Now, of course, all of that can be disrupted itself by accidents of the human condition. If we if we end up falling out with the Chinese or the Russians or something and there's some horrific war, then all bets are off. We're we're really going to be hoist by our own stupidity and all that could happen. But I, I do think there's a very good chance of a, a renaissance, that's what I call it in the book, a renaissance that will be built around the new clean ways of using independent energy. We've been talking with one of the powerhouses of climate activism, entrepreneurship and green information. Dr. Jeremy Leggett is writing a count of the battle to save civilization from wrenching climate change. It's called A Chronicle of the Carbon War, and you can read the installments of it free at jeremyleggett.net. Leggett has two G's and two T's in it. Jeremy, I know you are crazy busy these days. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Uh, thanks for letting me do that. And thanks to Alex Smith in Vancouver from Radio EcoShock for that interview with Jeremy Leggett. So that's it for the show tonight. And if uh, if you wish you've got some homework cut out for you, you can go to the Australian Regenerative Farmers Association website from which we heard Dean Belfield. You could uh, go online and look at the Future Super uh, from which Simon Shake was in conversation with Vivian at the Sustainable Living Festival. And finally, the other interviewee we had tonight was Xiu Xuen from Penang, Malaysia. So that's it for tonight. Thank you very much to the team as usual. We have Miwa, Roger, Teddy, Jody, Glenn, of course, Vivian and myself all working together to bring you the show every week. We, 3CR is mainly staffed by volunteers running their shows as we are running ours. And it, we've had a bit of a subscriber drive recently. If you missed that subscriber drive, you are still extremely welcome to ring up or to go online to 3cr.org.au website and make a subscription uh, for a very reasonable amount. You can help keep independent, progressive uh, uh, articles and speech on air. 
It's $70 for waged, $35 concession or $130 if you feel like reaching in deeply for a solidarity uh, subscription. If you do subscribe, and we hope that you do, please subscribe to BZE because we know you love us as much as we love you.